Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, ironradio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and sports nutrition professor of about 15 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, this is Phil Stevens. I got a half a cup of coffee in me. I'm ready to roll. I, uh, I've done powerlifting, highland games, strong man, a little bit of everything. I run Strength Guild and Barbell Open, amongst other things. Cool. And this is John Mike. I'm uh, also a professor. I got some tea with me as well. Phil's got some coffee. I got some tea. It's sunny outside, and I got the munchies, so it's time to eat soon. <laughs> oh, I know. I, I just ate this. You know, have you eaten those kind bars before? They're just like nuts. Yeah, they're so. they're not bad. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, it's all that's all I had. So I'm I ate I half have, of one of those. I like I, those. I like the Quest bars and the One bars are the best. Oh well, uh, yeah, Quest bars. I mean, I'm just thinking not so much protein, oh. but I I, I don't want to like starve to death while we record here <laughs> before uh, I get to the pancakes. You know. Anyway, all right, we've got some news. And um, our topic of the day is going to be how sore is too sore or optimal soreness, that sort of thing. It stems from our Facebook listeners page. But let's start with uh, a little bit of the news. Phil, you want to go first? Sure. Strength and Muscle Sport News. I got kind of a funny one. It was uh, somebody ordered a pizza and they thought they were going to rob the pizza man. And it ended up that... uh, that the owner of the pizza business was, uh, <laughs> what was his name? It was Keith Harris, I do believe. He used to play, or Napoleon Harris. He played linebacker for the Vikings oh. and the Oakland Raiders. And he let his delivery driver go home early that day and said, I'll just take whatever we got. So his 270-pound butt walks up to the door with the pizza. They jump out of the bushes. And uh, he fights all four guys off. So uh, this is in Illinois. Yeah, so I don't know. It's just a... Uh, a kind of a satire piece about how it, it's useful to be a, a large mammal. So well, there you go. <laughs> it is. <laughs> <laughs> they, I, he said they were expecting some five nine hundred and fifty pound dude, and they jumped on me. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he fought all four of them off. And, you know, <laughs> you know, Phil. People. Uh, I mean, and, and we all get this. People always kind of um, make fun of, or just kind of, you know slide jokingly make fun of people that are like big and muscular but and that's all fine like we've all been you know joked on that before about how it's it's hard to sit in an airplane seat and all that everything needs to be big but when it comes to like other things i mean specifically what you just mentioned it actually helps in a lot of ways to be big and strong yeah sometimes people just don't really see the other size or i'm almost surprised (laughs) that they didn't just run you know, like when yeah, you get out yeah. of the car with the pizzas, it's like, holy shit, he's a moose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, uh, What else you got? Anything else? Yeah. The, the only other thing I was going to mention is they announced that the USAW Junior Nationals is going to be coming to Kansas City this year. So it's coming to the Midwest. And mm. we, don't, we don't get to see big meets like that very often. It's three days. And... Uh, so, 
big. And I got some, I got some news. Uh, kind of on that same note, uh, Americans, Americans' strongest man is actually coming back to St. Louis for the first time in 13 years, and it's going to be at Hollywood Casino, uh, which is about 10 minutes from my house. So cool. um, that's, I think that's coming uh, in a couple weeks, actually. Nice. So, yeah. a fun one to go to. Yeah. yeah. Oh, good stuff. All right, well, let me throw some nutrition tidbits at everybody. I got my monthly copy of the IFT Wellness Newsletter, um, Institute of Food Technologists, and uh, I think it might be actually most helpful for me just to share some of the headlines, you know, instead of digging too far into each one. But let me just offer a couple of these. One, I did dig down a little for a specific reason because it's sort of thematic with our topic of the day. This first one, though, USDA partners to launch a food product nutrition database. Now, this was interesting to me because there's a lot of times people – you know, they go online, they want to see what the nutrition content of things are. Even Google, I think, supplies some nutrition information now. But uh, good food analyzer, nutrient anal- analysis programs are sometimes are expensive. Sometimes I doubt how good they are because the database isn't very good. You know, like you look up a specific food and it's not there. You end up having to, like, build your own double quarter pounder or something because it's not in the database. So here's what it says. The USDA Agricultural Service partnered with International Life Sciences Institute um, of North America to develop a new database of user-friendly um, information to make it easier for private food companies to add and update data. So I think this way you come up with a new product, uh, it's easier for just to kind of get it very specifically and accurately in this database. The database provides a transparent source of info that can assess health professionals identifying foods and portion sizes for people you know, with food allergies, diabetes, kidney disease, whatever. Um, I, it says, quote, there is so much data from the public and private sectors that can improve the health and quality of life for millions of people. It can be made more readily available, said U.S. Agriculture Secretary Tom uh, Vilsack. So they've created this partnership uh, it says, as information is added in coming months, it's expected the new database will include up to 500,000 products. So that's that's a pretty nice database, especially as new stuff comes out. You know, we are, whether it's a, a new protein bar or a, a fast food sandwich that you like to eat, whatever it is. Uh, and it's going to expand the level of detail and serving size, servings per package, the nutrients on the nutrition facts panel, you know, um, the ingredients list. Because sometimes you got to d- drill down to the ingredients list. You know, the protein, carbs, and fats aren't the whole story. Mm-hmm. So uh, so anyway, yeah, we'll, I'll keep everybody updated or you can poke around. But apparently the USDA is going to have this massive new database that's going to make it easier to, you know, get the data on what we're eating. Nice. Uh, next, this is the one that's thematic with the topic of the day. Uh, mulberry fruits phenol compounds may offer neuroprotective effects. A study journal, uh, published in the Journal of Food Science examines the phenolic profile, the antioxidant activity, and the neuroprotective potential of mulberry fruit, uh, in this case grown in China at different ripening stages. I'm not going to go into gory detail, uh, but essentially they found that uh, of the 19 phenolic compounds that they looked at, and a lot of these things, the antioxidants and the phenols are things some of us have heard of before, like um, 
uh, chlorogenic acid is also in coffee. You know, um, anthocyanins are the blue stuff, like also in blueberries, that sort of thing. Um, I believe it, it. this report says that the fruit extract's antioxidant activity was highest at, when you give it some ripening time. And then I actually pulled the paper. It's from Yang and colleagues. Um, it's, the paper itself is called Phenolic Profile Antioxidant Activity and Neuroprotective Properties of Mulberry Fruit Extracts at Different Ripening Stages. And um, the practical application here, let me jump to this, the types and concentration of phenolic compounds impact the taste and the nutritional value of mulberry fruit. The present study of the variations of phenolic profiles and the related antioxidant and neuroprotective effects of mulberry fruits during ripening will lead to the identification of the best way to harvest it, etc. So uh, as far as the neuroprotection stuff goes, uh, apparently there was uh, an enhancement of the antioxidant activities in the cells uh, that I think they incubated this with. So I had heard that blueberries were neuroprotective, you know, and neurorecovery agents, and now we can add mulberries to the list. And before we hit the record button, everybody, Phil and I were just talking, but as a nutritionist, it's a challenge for me to uh, find something for the power lifters. You know, power lifters are more acutely aware, I would argue, of CNS recovery or peripheral nervous system recovery, you know, whereas a lot of the bodybuilders, at least in my experience, they're more about the muscle tissue itself. Uh, and so, yeah, blueberries and mulberry may be something that actually help you recover when your nervous system feels fried. It's kind of interesting. Again, sort of taking that weightlifter's angle. Mm. Uh, let me offer one more here that's just jumping out at me. Sales for certified organic products are up 13%. It says the U.S. Department of Agriculture, uh, their National Agriculture Statistics Service, has released the results of last year's, right, because it takes some time to analyze all this stuff, 2015 survey. Uh, they looked at 12,818 certified organic farms in the U.S. Uh, let me just bring break down top five commodities uh, that were sold organically. Uh, number one, milk. Organic milk at 1.2 billion. It was up 8.4 percent from a year before. Uh, eggs were second, 732 million dollars. Uh, that was up 74.5 percent. So organic eggs really jumping up the ranks here in organic sales. Uh, broiler yeah. chickens, 420 million. That was up 13 percent from a year before. Apples were up 20 percent, and lettuce. Um, was actually slightly down. It's still in the top five, but down 1% for the organic lettuce. Gosh, price of food is going up, folks. Well, you know, it, 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 it suggests to me that people are looking for organics, you know, yeah. and milk and eggs, especially eggs jumping way up the list. People must want their organic eggs. Yeah. Well, I, I remember, like, back in the day, I mean, even in the 90s, like early 2000s, it would be, you know, Two dollars and fifty cents for a gallon of milk or something like that, and now now the shit is like six fifty seven plus dollars. <laughs> well, um, the, especially when we're you know, it, with the organic specifically, you really got to decide: right. is it worth it to spend twice as much, you know, yeah. on the organic version of something? Right. Exactly. I mean, yeah, yeah. So that's all I've got now. Before we go to break, uh, Phil, you said you had seen something. This is Iron Radio News, but on our mm -hmm. on our Facebook page about 
athlete athlete's performance. Yeah, we had um, you know one of the members, Vicky Morgan. She posted um, about a week ago and just saying that she forgot to put up her powerlifting meet results and thanking us, longtime listener, this and that. Vicky is uh, 54 years old. She weighs 112 pounds, and she went to a USPA meet. And she squatted 220, mm, which is almost four, nice. four pounds away from double body weight. Benched 132 and deadlifted 280. She took uh, third overall out of all the women, out of 22 women. So she said, "Old ladies rock." And thank you, Iron Radio. Ah, so. <laughs> uh, nice. I love that. Now, wait. She took that among. Was that just women in her weight class, like middle aged women, or no? That was all third overall out of all 22 women. Right on. Yeah, loving it. Yeah, it's a good job. <laughs> you know, just as a segue then, uh, we're going to talk about soreness after the break. And women actually resist muscle soreness uh, better than men do. Uh, so, you know, older ladies do rock. Yep. <laughs> there you have it. There you go. All right, let's go to break. When we come back, uh, we'll talk about optimal soreness. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what, uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So – uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. <laughs> Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, 
That's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Hi, everybody. We are back. And like Lonnie talked about, we're kind of... I, I got this topic off of the Iron Radio listeners page. So we had a listener come on. He had a question about soreness of his legs. He's getting back to, you know, training his legs again from being not doing it for a few months. I've been doing a lot of cardio and he didn't want to get, uh, you know, basically didn't want to get too sore and kind of ease into this thing. Anyways, after his first day back at training his legs, they are really sore. He's wondering, is it better to rest them or just hit it every few days or so so my legs will get used to the weights again? And then at the end here, he's like, he, he, he adds in that when I mean sore, it means I have a hard time walking sore. So um, that, that kind of got me thinking maybe we should talk about this some. So okay, yeah. uh, the first thing I, I mean, I went on there and told him, yeah, I mean, soreness, I generally have people train through average soreness. My problem is if I see somebody come in and they like they almost need a walker sore, <laughs> then we're probably not going to train them hard. But, I mean, you have to also then, uh, what, what do I consider training? That doesn't mean I'm not going to move them through full range of motion and things like that. Um, yeah. I'm just not going to make them squat. You know? <laughs> yeah, let's do another squat workout. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, you need to move through that and, and keep active. And that's actually going to age your recovery. Maybe do some of that cardio he's been doing, and and things like that. But yeah, you know the range of motion stuff. I think is so important. I remember as an undergrad, I had an old. Uh, he was a gymnastics coach. I took a gymnastics class, and his name was Rudy Bachna. And he used to always say, "You stretch a sore muscle." Now he mm-hmm. wasn't basing that on any lab, anything, or science. He just from forty years or more of experience, he's you know stretch a sore muscle, and. Actually, gosh, I think it was probably back in the 70s and 80s, uh, Priscilla Clarkson, she was one, uh, yep. one of the exercise physiologists. She's done a lot of work with muscle remodeling. She was soreness. awesome. Oh, you rocking awesome. Almost she like, was awesome. You know, me, she like passed away like three, two, three years ago. Oh. Yeah. But she, uh, th- one of her grad students did an v- interesting project where they immobilized sore muscles and they actually showed that they had lower damage markers in their bloodstream now but you got to be careful when you interpret this right to me that means it it sat there unused and you didn't flush out some of that damage Mm -hmm. marker like creatine kinase and so i i don't know if they did that like with one side of the body versus the other like a contralateral limb or i don't remember how they did that but what i do remember was moving around actually increased some of these uh, damage markers like creatine kinase uh, but with the conclusion, I think that moving is good, like out with the old, in with the new, instead of just yeah. sitting there immobile and letting that trashed muscle kind of just localize and, you know, fester. Mm-hmm. You know. I mean, there, there comes a point, too, where it's almost just logical. You know, like when I wake up in the morning after a really hard training session, I might be really sore and hard to move around. But you notice as you get going for the day, you know, everything kind of loosens up, you know, because I'm, I'm out moving around. And like you said, getting that waste product out, loosening everything up. Um, and it's hell. I mean, as I get older, I'm just that way every morning, despite the, <laughs> despite the training. You know? right, right. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there is a point to it, though. I mean, I have people come in and I generally start them out lower than I 
think they should or they think they should because I know they're going to be sore. But that's for the fact because I want them to be able to come back in a couple days and train again. And, you know, we got to build up that resistance to training and more so their ability to recover faster. You know, so they will train on some soreness like, hey, my legs are pretty sore and they'll get going. Well, never mind. I feel pretty good, you know. Yeah. But there's a level like if you can't walk, I'm not going to I'm not going to load you up again. So right on. Yeah. uh, You know, one thing that might be helpful, practical tip for listeners is, um, you know, if you can't make it up the stairs, I remember when I did my dissertation with downhill running and uh, some of the guys were so rocked and I was one of them that, you know, you could barely get up the stairs with the handrail. You know, and I mean, that's rocked. So, and it does sort of beg the question how sore is too sore? There is one thing that you could do. If you find yourself rocked all the time, there are different pain scales. And you mm-hmm. can jot these down in your uh, training log. So, I use something called the Abraham pain scale. I don't think I'd use it again for different reasons, but it was a zero to three scale. And each number had an operational definition like zero you know you're not sore at all one is there's some soreness detectable if you kind of palpate and push you know and it went all the way through so sore it interfered with daily activities the problem with that is it makes like 25 percent jumps there's not a lot of granularity so i would suggest listeners if you just go to google images and type in uh analog pain scale Mm-hmm. You can actually get one. Some of them will like have a frowny face on one end and a happy face on the other. And it's basically just like a ruler. And you just kind of point or think about your number uh, on this scale. Or you can do like a 1 to 7 Likert scale, you know, from very unsore to very, very sore. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can log that stuff. And if you're really trashed all the time, yeah, you might want to – I don't know, maybe as a power lifter or a strength athlete – you might want to rethink. I mean, are you in a hypertrophy phase? Maybe you could be doing a, a little bit less volume, uh, you know, and up the intensity. Uh, as a bodybuilder, I always love to be sore. I mean, the mm. more sore, the better is the way I kind of looked at it because it suggested that I, you know, I applied some overload, I guess. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, uh, I think, you know, Lonnie, that's funny you mentioned about the pain analog skill because I actually used that for my dissertation. We were doing um, squatting. Um, twice a week for four weeks using varying um, uh, eccentric durations. And so we just used a pain analog scale of like one to 10 and subjects would point to, you know, how uh, level, uh, what their level of soreness, you know, might be. And, you know, funny thing is, is that, you know, nobody ever got above a five, anybody, uh, especially for the six second uh, eccentric duration. Um, Another thing I like to kind of touch on is in, I think as as strength athletes, because of our experience, yes, we we like being sore, um, and for for a lot of people, they they correlate um, the degree of muscle damage that they have with the quality of the training session. Right. Yes, um, I've been guilty and, myself. You know, there's there's some pretty interesting papers out there. Um, one of them is from a couple of years ago from Strength and Condition Journal from uh, you know Brad Schoenfeld and, and and Brett Contreras, you know, two uh, two good colleagues of mine. And, you know, they, they talked about, you know, the science and some of the mechanisms obviously involved with, with the muscle damage process. But um, r- the bottom line is, um, you know, muscle damage is not a very good correlator um, with how good or quality of the training session that you, you have. You know, Joey, because there, I specifically published a paper in back in 01, and we tried to correlate damage markers like creatine kinase and ALT and AST and these different enzymes with um, soreness. 
you know, mm-hmm. so in other words, does soreness correlate with tissue, actual tissue damage? And it really didn't. So it, what yeah. you just said just struck me, right? The correlations were very poor. Like you'd think yeah, the more sore people had more muscle damage, but that wasn't always true. No, it's it's re- it's really not. I mean, you can have a really great quality training session and really not be uh, sore, you know. And and, and people, um, and it's just it's just this kind of like human nature. I mean, when you get sore, you're like, oh yeah, it's the good sore, you know, the kind of the good hurt, and you just you just kind of consciously correlate that with oh i must have had a really good training session because i am sore but that's really that's really not the case it's more psychological than it is physiological but one of the things that i also want to say is when it comes to building strength and hypertrophy there's a there's also a certain degree of damage that's actually required to facilitate further increases in strength and hypertrophy um you know so you know muscle damage but also muscle damage is not obligatory for hypertrophy adaptations either so it's it's certain amount of damage is required how much damage is needed we don't really know because everybody responds so differently to various types of training and there and there's so much inter individual variability with the training response and the sensitivity that people have with respect to damage or you know creating kinase markers or whatever like i've come across people that after like five sets of you know 10 on the leg press or something like that like they're sore for days other people have to do like 20 or 25 reps or high volume um to get sore so a lot of that just just really comes with experience and and what types of training programs that you do your training history how much volume that you do um so there's a lot of things to 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 really consider um, but at the same time, you know, there's multiple segments to the same side here. Um, even excessive damage um, can obviously have a negative effect on exercise performance and recovery. And of course, extreme, you know, damage really puts you in a situation for like rhabdomyolysis, um, which is just basically very extreme muscle damage that you can actually end up in the hospital. And we have like the, the one of the hallmark symptoms are is a dark Coca-Cola colored urine, right. um, yeah. you know, which can really impede your ability to recover. Um, you know, kind of going on what, what Phil said earlier, I, I, I tell I talk about this stuff a lot with um, my exercise phys class when we get to the resistance training adaptations part is that um when i think that in a lot of ways if you just waited till you're not sore to train totally not sore you you might as well just train once or twice a week um because you're probably not going to make as many adaptations and performance increases as you want so there's there's there has to be several occasions over the course of, of, of years to where you have to train like when you soar. That's like saying, you know, a top collegiate or Olympic athletes can't train when they're sore. Well, I mean, gosh, they might as well just train once a week. Um, so it's a, it, there's kind of a fine line that, that you have to walk with respect to muscle damage and how much is too much. And, 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 you know, and, and there's really, um, and that's what's so difficult about talking about this topic is the dose response relationship um, is, is very um, highly variable. Yeah, you know the um, when I look at the literature, and this is by no means sweeping all science, but uh, a lot of the eccentric protocols that I've looked at and that I've used, uh, 
they involve about 25 to 40 repetitions with fairly heavy weight. Again, I'm talking about like four count negatives. And I know, John, you did your dissertation with how how much time in the negative, right? But uh, mm-hmm. I've always done an exaggerated, uh, you know, um, lowering of the weight. Uh, and to me, it looks like the magic volume number is somewhere around 25 to 40 reps. Like you said, people are so individual. Even nutrition affects a lot of this stuff or gender i mentioned before the break women resist eccentric damage from negatives uh more so than men partly because of some of the antioxidant effects of estrogen and and that sort of thing but diet affects this stuff too i mean in my dissertation i fed people cla and i know it's mostly used for fat loss but there was some fascinating literature that it helped reduce some of the catabolism you know, during this acute phase, this like, you know, stress response. And the fats that you consume can reduce inflammatory markers like interleukin-6. Um, interestingly, protein, high-protein diets increased creatine kinase. We, we published some of that stuff just as abstracts, uh, gosh, about 10 years ago. Uh, and to me, it was a lot like the Priscilla Clarkson work with moving versus immobilizing. Because you might think, well, the protein made the damage worse. There's more CK. No, it's more like, again, through that almost rehab-type range of motion work, I think the protein encouraged muscle turnover and, again, sort of out with the old, in with the new. I mean, that's just speculation. But make no mistake, I mean, protein and fat intake, for example um, – can affect this stuff you know maybe some antioxidants we did some work uh just earlier this year we were presenting some er, some work with uh analogs of vitamin e and how they might improve certain aspects so some of this you got to measure with performance too you can't just look at the enzymes spilling into your blood but like uh, are you weaker right when you're really trashed uh at least the work that i've done suggests you're probably 10 or 15 percent weaker and so you got to think about the performance outcome too. Is there something that you could eat or some massage or range of motion stuff like Phil said, you know, that speeds that r- return of strength, I guess. Well, and I think like like John was was touching on if you if these people start out and they're always waiting until they're completely not sore again. They're never going to adapt. You know, yeah, you end yeah. up waiting a week or 10 days and then you do it again. And not surprisingly, you are just as sore from this next workout as you were from the first one. And that just continues on forever. You know, there's a, there's a point where you got to get in there. Okay, I got to get it done. And then, oh, I'm not as sore as I was. And over time, you build up. It's not a resistance, I don't think. It's more of a you adapt to it and you're able to, to recover faster. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So yeah. it's kind of a double-edged sword. And that's where I kind of, if we kind of apply things, it's... Even if you're starting back, let's say you were a, a really good athlete at one point and you took a break, start lower than you think you should, you know, and, and slowly build up again over time. So, you know, hit three quarters of what you think you should in the training program or half. It's okay. It's, it's all about the long haul again instead of I need to do it all again right now. You know, I, I need to train like when I was a, a national athlete. Well, you're not anymore. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, back off build that back up to where you can do that again and then you won't be as sore you know you're not as sore from that initial training session and then you can do a little bit more that next one and a little bit more the next one but yeah you're never going to be i don't know an athlete a good athlete that isn't training in some kind of state of not recovered 
all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, you know exactly. I so. mentioned nutrition too. One of the things you got to be cognizant of, if, if you're rocked from head to toe, you are actually, your carbohydrate sensitivity is actually poorer uh, mm-hmm. for years. You know, I in the early 2000s, bodybuilders, it really came out all this stuff about carbs make me fat. It's not the fats that make me fat. You know, and and a lot of that can be true. I mean, it's pretty standard fare now backstage at bodybuilding shows to hear people talk about how they basically removed carbs from their diets, you know. Yeah. But I think part of that might stem from the idea that if you are almost always sore to some degree, you are somewhat, at least the muscles that are sore, not all of the muscles, but the ones that were affected are somewhat uh, insulin-resistant or glucose intolerant. And you can mm-hmm. find work from... Oh, man, uh, Bill Sherman, uh, John Ivey, Kevin Yurashevsky, uh, Della Guila. I still remember a lot of these names, but where they actually show poor, uh, either higher insulin in your blood because your muscles are resisting and your body's trying to force the issue, mm-hmm. or poorer glycogen recovery. You know, um, Now, in practical terms, does that mean you shouldn't eat any carbs when you're trying to gain weight? No, it doesn't, but you just got to keep in mind. I mean, if, if you're really rock from head to toe... It might be good to focus on some healthy fats during that period mm-hmm. as your energy source. Uh, you know, the practical application of this is hard to tease out, but it's really not up for debate that sore muscles are uh, a little bit carbohydrate intolerant. Yeah. You know. So, John, let me ask you something real quick. Mm-hmm. So, you, your dissertation—you did a huge lit review. Uh, what are your? What's your thought from the science uh, as far as actually? improving recovery ability not just an armor plating effect but is that trainable like if you're recovering if it takes you three or four days to recover and then later not just the same workout but somehow you can just recover much more quickly is is your ability to the speed of recovery trainable um i think so yes and i'm I'm going more off experience um competition experience versus just the science alone okay um and and i would i mean but i but there's also a ample science to to say that you can there's so many uh, ways uh, abilities to recover i mean there's so many different recovery like methods i mean you know whether it's cold showers and now the big thing that doesn't really this seems kind of mixed is this whole cryotherapy stuff um but I mean, there's foam rolling, there's soft tissue work, you know, there's massages, there's, you know, just uh, mobility work, stability work. I mean, there's there's a whole host of things that that can help speed up recovery, and and that's just more on the the physical side. There's also the nutritional side as well, obviously, you know, with with protein and, and whatnot. But um, I I think I think you can train yourself to speed up the recovery process. Uh, how you actually do that um, is is hard to say. Because there's so many different ways and methods to do it, but um, some people just recover better than others. Um, you know, maybe it's you know fiber type. You know, if you're doing some people recover pretty well from super high volume, and other people recover pretty well from rather high intensity. I do know that for me personally, and I'm sure Phil can uh, attest to this. I get more sore from doing strongman shit than than I do. <laughs> Than I do like my normal training. Um, I mean, cause the other day I just did like three sets of 
um, conditioning with um, just two fifty farmers walk for sixty feet. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't sore the next day, but I could tell like like my back and my upper back was a little um, you know a little more sore than it is from like usual um, you know back work with with the other training days. But um, you know, and but but at the same time. I don't do as much strongman stuff on a regular basis as I do the training. So, you know, um, but it, it, yeah, it's just, it's just, it's, Lonnie, it's just great. It's hard to answer. You know, it's like, it a, it's a simple question. It's a simple question, but complex answer. Oh, right. And I think, I think you hit the nail on the head maybe right there was, like you said, you get more sore from the strongman, but you're also not doing that usually. I think you get right. accustomed to a certain type of training. That's like one of the things we were doing this week was, or the last few weeks was really heavy pod squats. So I had my my guys and gals going to a set of five or a set of three or a set of one. And week one, my power lifters went to a heavy set of five. They were fine. You know, the next day they're like, yeah, that was fun. You know, my people that aren't used to that were wrecked. You know, <laughs> like I can hardly walk wrecked from one set of five. You know, and but if I had my power lifters do a, a hard set of 20, they'd have been wrecked. You know, and that's like for me, like you said, soreness isn't a good uh, indicator of a good training session. The days I'm the most muscularly sore is usually when I have a bad training day and I'm not feeling good. So I'm like, ah, I'm just going to be a tissue assassin. Right. I'm going to do lots of reps with lightweight and I will be wrecked. Yeah. But if I just stayed and did five sets of three or whatever with really heavy weight, I'd been fine. You know, I'd have felt that I trained, but I wouldn't be like, I can't walk hardly. Yeah, I love so that I, term. <clears throat> I love the term tissue assassin. I think bodybuilders are tissue assassins. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. you're after remodeling. You want white blood cells to get down in there and, you know, phagocytize, eat up the debris and secrete growth factors. And mm-hmm. I know powerlifters want remodeling too, but for big portions of the year, I, I think almost all of the time for bodybuilders, if if you're rocked and you're remodeling muscle tissue for three days at a time, you know, you don't you don't care if your bench press is fifteen percent down. Mm-hmm. You know, when yeah. when you're slightly sore and you're back at it again. Uh, let me ask you though, Phil. So let's say someone comes in and they are a nine on a ten scale, one of these analog scales. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as the the severity of the soreness, mm-hmm. how are you going to address that? You know that lifter differently. Like if someone comes in and says, "I'm a three, you know he's been in hard training," versus someone who comes in as a nine. Are you going to change what you do? Or are you going to stick oh, to no. the periodization or, or what? No, we'll change what they do. You know, if somebody's a nine, I'll probably just put them on an airdyne and let them slowly bike. You know, <laughs> okay. something to help get them recovered. Um, the weird thing is, though, I mean, and I don't know, you can talk to other weightlifting coaches. Weightlifters are weird. What we've seen is, like, when my weightlifters do the best is when you just rock them. Like, we push them hard. They're at this training program. They walk in like, man, I feel like death. And they hit a 15-pound PR, you know. And I don't know what it is, and it makes no sense because usually the, one of the first things you lose as, like, overreaching comes along is your ability to be explosive. Like, the strength yes. is still there. You can grind things out. But I don't know what it is with weightlifters. It's like you get them. And it could be the fact that they're always doing explosive moves. Um but for some reason, nine out of ten times, man, you get a weightlifter and you've just rocked them with hard five, six hard training sessions a week. They'll come in, they'll look and feel like death, and they kill it. So mm. I don't know. It's it's hard to tell. It's 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 
it's hard to go by what the way your body feels. You know, sometimes. Phil, to me that that suggests there like a dichotomy between nervous system recovery and muscle tissue mm-hmm. recovery cuz maybe there's something that's some cytokine or inflammatory marker that it, it's making their muscles, you know, damage micro trauma, but it's igniting their nervous system somehow. Yeah. Something is going on. <laughs> hmm. But uh yeah, it's it's hard to you need to listen to your body, but sometimes it lies to you. If you're a nine on the scale, you probably should listen to your body. If you're a five, give it a shot. You know, I've had days where I feel like death and I go in and it's like this is gonna be a horrible training session. And I get going and then I'm hitting better than I've ever hit before. So I mean Yeah. But yeah, you don't wanna don't kick a horse while it's down. You know, I've had those days where it's like like you talked about, I can't make it up the stairs. I'd be a I'd be stupid to go hit a hard training session on that. Yeah. But I've had other days. I had a day what was it two years ago? I hit seven hundred for three in deadlift. The next week I come in, I'm supposed to hit these numbers and I literally could not pick up four oh five off the ground, even though I felt fine. And I tried it twice. I was like, I'm done. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I just shut it down. Nervous and system, away. I think. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And uh you know, I wasn't upset about it because I knew I I knew I I wasn't automatically three hundred plus pounds weaker in a week, you know that oh, doesn't right, happen, right? You know, so it takes some some maturity to know that, and just walk away and say I just need to recover. You know, I right. went and ate some donuts and slept. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say eat some mulberries and blueberries, but <laughs> yeah, donuts so, too, I guess. <laughs> yeah, there's always something. I don't know. I'm a firm believer, and there's always something we can do, unless you're injured. You know, there's a there's a difference, but I mean, if somebody's really sore, it's like, oh, let's adjust it, and we you're weak here, and that doesn't hurt, so let's do that. You know, the, you always have something we can work on. You know, yeah. whether it's recovery, you know, it might just be flat out recovery. Let's get you recovered so tomorrow you can train, or two days from now you can train. <clears throat> yeah. But, um, and that's even you guys know. I mean, I've had to work around all kinds of injuries from an early age, and it's just being smart about it. And there's always something you can do to better yourself. You know, and that sometimes that's in the kitchen or in the bed, sleeping more. That's right. No, that's <laughs> so, that's good advice, right there. So yeah, I would think if I was really rocked again, my my bodybuilder brain is I'm going to go eat some healthy fats. I'm going to go pound some protein, and you know I'm not going to shy away from the carbs either. I know the sore muscles might be a little resistant, but it's time to eat. It's time to sleep. You know that kind of stuff. Yeah. Supply because you've applied a stimulus. Yeah. You know, good on you. No, know, Lonnie. I I think that we need to have an episode on like sleep, um, because I I don't know how people. I mean, Lonnie, I know you do. I, I mean, I feel. I mean, you get up, you know, fairly early, but I don't. I'm trying to figure out as I've gotten a little older how people get up at you know four a.m., five a.m., and regardless if they go to the gym or not, even just get up and do some work on their computer or have a little coffee and just it's like they're just kind of ready to ready to go you know i would like to talk about that i think that would be a good you know feature episode we could sleep quality needs more attention mike nelson's really good at using a bunch of biometrics and mm-hmm. fitbit yeah, type is, things yes. to measure that stuff yeah yeah okay. sometimes you're forced into that yeah <laughs> my lifestyle right now forces i have to be at I have to be on point at the gym, ready to go at five fifteen. You know, because I got people walking in. So, um, but yeah, it's not that I you're good at it. It's not my choice. <laughs> right, no, right. You know? <laughs> no, I've but. been like that lately. I've got a, 
I, I've got a new class prep, and it's essentially medicine. And, you know, I, I, so I'm, I've got like 25 slides I have to pull out of my ass and basically, you know, figure out cancer. Well, that's not going to happen today. I'm not going to figure out cancer (laughs) or the entirety of the immune system. And so I get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, and I cheat. I bite a caffeine pill in half. It's the only way it's going to happen. You know, I'm not not just bushy-tailed. Like, woo! Yeah. Yeah. You know, so... Hi, guys. I think it was a good show. Yeah. You know what? Let me, before we go, just very quickly, I want to thank a couple of people. We had mentioned the fall funds drive coming up, and a couple of people stepped up already, and it's just very appreciated. Shannon, Kyle... And Niall, thanks for your support. Your it doesn't go unnoticed. So um, good on you. We haven't even started the you know our usual uh, drive like that. And again, we try not to nag about it a lot, but I really appreciate that. So Shannon, Kyle, and Niall, thanks for supporting Iron Radio. Thank you. Thank you. All right, guys. Until next week. Catch you later. All right. Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store. Uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, The stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, Please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.